I'm Alan Barr, and this is Radio Free RPG. Hello, I'm Alan Barr, and welcome to Radio Free RPG. I'm joined by my guest, Rich August of Steamforge Games. Welcome, Rich. Hi, Alan. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Always lovely to speak to you. Yes. Uh, and you're joining us from Manchester, the United Kingdoms, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. On a, a authentically miserable Mancunian day. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that on your behalf, I suppose. Uh, and you are the lead RPG muckety muck at Steamforge Games. That is that is correct. Yes, that is why I insist on being called. <laughs> Excellent. I figured that would be an appropriate title. So why don't you walk us through sort of what you do, what your responsibilities are, what it's like at Steamforge Games? I suppose my my job kind of correlates fairly well with sort of a a kind of line manager slash editor but across multiple lines so i i am basically you know in charge of kind of a lot of the concepting the development the writing and and then you know the kind of strategic overview of all the games what they're meant to do what we want them to do in the marketplace and then seeing them through to completion you know so uh kind of basically i'm i'm involved at every stage of uh any of our rpg products you know whether it's the whether it's a core book or whether it's you know uh, an epic encounter set or dice or anything like that i'm kind of involved all the way through okay and so do you handle things like art direction alongside that well we have we have an in-house art director Russ, Russ Charles, who's also kind of lead sculptor and, and like F, everybody here, wears a couple of different hats. So I do do some art direction with him. So it's a, you know, it's a cooperative thing. So yeah, there is art direction. There is work. Our lead graphic designer, Elliot um, Smith, and our lovely graphics team to, you know, make sure the look is right. Yeah, it's, yeah. Okay. So well, oh, yeah. it's not your sole responsibility like it might be for a smaller publisher or something, but you definitely work in tandem with the people who govern that task. Yes. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. There's a, we, we do, we are in the fortunate position of kind of having, you know, specialists who can then work with, you know, people who aren't naturally gifted in an area like me to make sure that, you know, the things look right and look nice and do what they're meant to do. That makes sense. That's the role of specialists to ease the burden on the non-specialists. So let's start talking about Epic Encounters. So for those who don't know, Epic Encounters are boxes for role for specifically uh, D&D 5e, but they are role-playing game adventures that come with a collection of pre-assembled miniatures and a one or two night adventure with a map, tokens, things like that. All in a box that in the U.S. generally runs thirty-five to fifty dollars, depending on what's in it. 
they tend to be structured yeah. in a two box pattern with sort of like the minions and the mooks in the first box and the second half of the adventure and the boss are the second box, which is a big, large miniature, like a dragon or a giant worm monster, but they can also be ran as solo adventures. So they can be divorced. And yeah. one of the things about Epic Encounters is it really fills a niche for people who like miniatures at the tabletop, but don't maybe have the time or the inclination to run down and paint a bunch of minis because these come with pre-assembled minis. They are locked in with adventures. So what was the genesis of the Epic Encounters line? Why did you feel there was a niche in the market to fill with this product because rpg miniatures are not uncommon <laughs> no no they aren't so there's there's two things do you remember joan of arc from uh mythic games came out a few years ago it was 15 millimeter kind of game i'm familiar with the game though i've never played it yeah well they did a dragon and it was a very nice dragon scale to 15 millimeters. And we had a deal with them where we sent them a load of God tier and they sent us a load of Joan of Arc. And so we got this, this dragon mini and Matt, our creative uh, chief creative officer or director, creative director, creative director, that's the one, was a big fan of this mini, but kind of basically thought, well, why can't we we can do that. And I'd just been brought on board and we started basically discussing the fact that RPG minis, while they weren't uncommon, they weren't specialized and they usually, without wanting to sound too kind of hostile, I think, you know, a lot of the major companies specializing in RPG miniatures don't do a brilliant job. You know, certainly I think that I, I won't name them, but the ones who have the, the 5e license, their miniatures are crap. And they they aren't cheap and they aren't particularly good. And we at Steamforged, I think, you know, I, I would argue do some of the best miniatures in the business and were able, you know, with, with some kind of discussions with our manufacturers, we're able to do really, really cool miniatures at a relatively affordable price. And we had me to kind of, you know, come up with adventures and cool ideas. And, and basically, we were, what we wanted to do was, was give people something they could immediately take off the shelf and use. And it would have virtually everything you needed into play. So that kind of a bridging product, if you like, where you go from the starter set to something more complex, but you were still having that, that guided, you know, hand-holding feel, which I, I think is something that that is is missing in the industry i think we're we're quite good at starter sets and we're very good at core books and we're less good at you know that those that, that transitional process that you tend to go from here's a starter set which explains everything in minute detail and it's very very you know clearly broken up it's very clearly delineated and then suddenly here's a 400 page rule book and you need to read all of this if you go to gm and there's not that kind of, you know, trainer wheels almost. And we felt that we could offer something which which gave, you know, um, a lot of 
of, of tips, some guidance to GMs that gave them everything they needed to get a game to the table without that kind of, you know, without the weight of expectation, which players can often, you know, put on a GM, um, you know, for each night of gaming, etc. And we could kind of give them everything. So it was a combination of we can do cool RPG minis and we can make them as, you know, affordable as anybody else on the market. And we can offer a, a something genuinely useful to newer players. Okay. That's a, that's an interesting, interesting attitude towards the product. We, I think you're right. And this is something that certain games are very good at. I'm going to name Privateer Press right now. Their War Machine Mark IV releases have been very good at providing a purchasing through line for the consumer. You bought the starter. Did you like it? Great. And it tells you right there, the next two products you might want are these two. And if you buy one of those and you go, oh, I like this, they go, the next two products you might want are these two. And they've created this clear purchasing line that walks you from start to sort of finish of the product line. And I, I definitely agree with you that that is something that RPGs historically don't do. You either get a core book or you get a starter set and the next product is the core book. Now, mm. with a similar line that Steamforge produces, the Animal Adventures line, you've kind of taken that idea of the epic encounters uh, with the miniatures and the through line, but you've also included the starter set. Yes. Because it does have its own starter set for this game where you play cats and dogs. It does indeed. But you don't have the same epic encounter boxes in that no. there's adversaries within an adventure. There are adversary miniatures, but there's no equivalent mm -hmm. epic encounter. So what was the decision to sort of pivot and do something different? I would have I would have thought that you would try to emulate the same thing and create a firm through line. <laughs> I mean that's a fair it's a fair argument. With Animal Adventures, there is a very different market and a very different audience for it. And a lot of people who are buying Animal Adventures aren't buying them for role-playing games. They are buying okay. them because they are cute. They are cute animal miniatures and they're collectible. So what we've got with Animal Adventures is is a split audience that we are we we are trying to uh, accommodate and and to you know to to please everybody. So you've got some people who really do like the animal adventures world and the RPG, uh, the associated RPG ness that comes with them. You know the uh, and that's what the starter set was for. It was for people who you know might have the the miniatures or might you know their kids might have seen the miniatures and want to play the games. And so we've given them, you know, an even more simplified kind of version of 5e. So, you know, you strip away a lot of the, the excess additions, you know, really in 5e skills aren't really doing a whole lot. Uh, they just give you, an, a, you know, an additional, you just get to use your attribute, uh, what's your, your proficiency bonus, et cetera. So you can kind of strip those things out and cut it down even more and have this, you know, cute world, et cetera. But when it comes to the miniatures, there are a large percentage of people who just want the miniatures. And so, basically, we'd be kind of uh, weakening a strength, really, to to sell them as epic encounters because 
you know the the additional costs uh, associated with an epic epic encounter are going are going to put off buyers. And then there's also the fact that you know there's only a limited number of dog species you can recognisably do as miniatures, and the number of cat you know species you can recognisably do as miniatures, etc. And people aren't necessarily going to want to buy twenty cat miniatures at a time. They might want to buy six or ten, and you can raise your hand all you like, but you know you can you can get sort of people want to kind of buy six maybe 10 of them top that i mean if nothing else if we were to sell that as a, an epic encounter i think people would feel slightly shortchanged okay that's interesting and is there a reason you haven't considered putting like a digital adventure with a qr code or something in the product something that leverages so, for example, yes. Yeah, so, for example, if I go buy the box of Doggy Heroes number one, it comes with five or six little dogs and their miniatures. But it would be easy to do a PDF of like NPCs that also use these miniatures or pre generated characters in a small one site adventure or something that well, creates that value we add. Have, we do have four, I think, four free adventures on, on, the, on the website. For okay. animal adventures, and we also have basic character creation rules. So the more advanced character creation rules for cat and dog PCs and other animals are in the two source books. Okay. Uh, Gullet Cove, which is available, and Far Away Sea, which is delivered has delivered to backers now and, and will be in retail soon. Um, but we have you know more basic versions of those on the website, and we also do have a couple of i think there's two kind of free rpg day adventures on there and then two we just put up there so there are materials available to kind of you know breadcrumb the trail in but at the same time you know we're a company and we've got to we've got to make money right and uh, you know we could sell a 30 quid source book and 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 you know make a, a passable return on it whereas you know a small a fr- you know unless you're kind of i think really pushing the digital side which we haven't that is something i'm hoping to change but we haven't pushed it as much as we might have until that's kind of well established you're not going to make the kind of returns on it we need to see i see it's interesting it and it, it's a i think it's a different perspective from somebody in my boat where digital is such a large part of my market that i am always considering how can i enhance the value proposition through digital content for hmm. this release or this item or what have you. It's just a natural path that my thought process as a publisher takes. So I, I think it's interesting that in in your case, the value add isn't there where necessarily at this time. Whereas for me, it is pretty much immediately always there because so much of my consumer base expects digital content. <coughs> yeah. Well, and I think this is partly a legacy of. Um, I know there are aspects of this I can't talk about uh, for for one reason or another. I'll tell you off air, but you know. But part of the thing is um, we're a miniatures company, right? Or have been very strongly associated as a miniatures company, and so the physical product for us 
is and to a greater or lesser degree remains the central element you know that the actual Absolutely. artifact itself is definitely the main thing so while we are i mean you know epic encounters is being put up is going to be put up on on drive through all the dark souls books are available on drive through we started using that for pre-orders and you know putting the book out early etc yep. you know um all of these things they are incremental steps we're not there yet right okay I think that's, I mean, and I definitely, you know, every business has their own way of going about things. So I definitely think that's not, I'm not saying that's not valid, but I find it interesting, the thought process that leads into these decisions, especially as a person who controls the publishing aspect of my, you know, my experience of my company. Yes. Well, I, I, you know, I don't have that. I don't have the same freedom on that. Absolutely. You do. Uh, obviously, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages to our kind of, you know, various company situations. Yes. I think this is possibly, possibly a disadvantage of mine. But, you know, I, I'm not sure I'd change. No, and I, it's, it's interesting to think about, but I don't think one way is any more valid than the other. They just work differently. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, it is it is something we're doing more of. Um, yeah. But as I said, we're not we're not quite there yet. Yeah, absolutely. I with with the with digital being such a strong component of Gallant Night Games products, when the pandemic started, we were well positioned to keep moving roughly the same amount of product through an easy through an easy uh, channel. Though I have colleagues at other companies who, because distributors shut down or game stores were shut down, their sales dropped off a cliff relatively quickly. Because uh, they relied on that physical component so much. Mm. Did, did that add any tension or is that part of this alteration to the strategic plan? Maybe the realization that this could change and maybe it's good to have that extra buffer. I think, I think what's important to remember with, with Steamforged is that the majority of our business is board games. Right. Um, and as a result, actually, the pandemic wasn't was as for I think a lot of major board game companies quite good for us in some ways. You know, people were and had the the money to put into Kickstarters, which isn't the right. case at the minute. You know, Kickstarter was twenty cents down last year, yep. and while obviously some of that is because it's been you know the market's been um, being contested in a way it wasn't prior prior to this. Even then, I think, you know, I, I don't think GameFound took 10% or 15% even of Kickstarter's money. I think they are 20% down because people are spending less on it. So sure. our, you know, we are we are good at Kickstarters. We do good, you know, Monster Hunter's delivering now, and that did very, very well. And in part, that did very well because people were at home. They had that expendable money, and, and they sure. wanted to be, sure. you know, investing in this kind of product. So RPGs are a growing part of our company. They are not the biggest part of it. And so the, the, you know, the, the hit on retail wasn't as big for us as it might have been for you know, um, a company more solidly invested sure. in so sure. While there is, yeah, well, again, digital is always good because it, you know, it's, it's, it's cheap. 
It's an easy way to disseminate product. It's popular. Everybody loves a PDF. It means we can get the product out earlier, can get eyes on it earlier. It has only kind of recently become something where we want to put more effort into mm -hmm. it just because, you know, until recently, we were doing brilliantly on the Kickstarters. Uh, sure. We're doing badly on the Kickstarters at the minute. It's just that, you know, that market is smaller than it was. Our Kickstarters are all doing very well, but there are fewer people wanting to put that kind of money into Kickstarters. Sure. That's interesting. It it can be easy when RPGs are a bulk of what you consume to look at a company that makes RPGs tangentially and afford it the same sort of weight to the company's, uh, company's bottom line or sort of structure. So it's a good reminder to be told, no, we RPGs are nice, but we're a miniature company, I suppose. That must make your job um, interesting sometimes. Uh, I mean, it, it does, and you know there are. Th I, I won't pretend there hasn't been some tensions around that. Never actual kind of arguments or anything, but it you know that's because I kind of know where, know what what is, right. what's needed, you know, and that's that's part of I think working in a, in a bigger company is knowing what your role is and sure. where you value to the company so you know there's no point you know let's let's be honest we look at we look at rpg kickstarters only one rpg kickstarter has ever done above five million and it was avatar and let's be honest it doesn't look like anybody's getting close to that in the near future no. whereas million dollar board games and two million three million four million there are a lot of those sure board games it makes you know, sense. Board games is, is, is a bigger market or, or has been until recently. You know, I think with the D&D &D movie, et cetera, that, that may shift, that may shift the needle a little bit more towards RPGs. Okay. But at the end of the day, you only need one core book to play an RPG most of the time. Right. So there, there are less, you know, there are fewer things to spend your money on. Sure. And and a lot of those things are made by other companies. Dice, right? There's no way to unless you have proprietary dice. There's no way to restrict where somebody gets their dice to play your game. Yeah. Whereas with a board game, they need the other components physically to play the add-ons. Now, I mean, people do you? Yeah. Do you think that those differences in the Kickstarter totals are partially due to price point? For example, I see $200, $300 Kickstarter pledge levels for board games all the time, especially these miniature heavy ones. But most RPG pledge levels range from $50 to $100 and maybe more if you're getting something unique or customized. Yes. I, I mean, the that's, that's part of it, yeah. There is definitely, you know, a, a greater room for the kind of plastic crack element of of, of big board game Kickstarters that RPGs don't have the same scope for. At the same time, I also think some of it's just due to there being more people, more people playing board games and more people willing to invest in that. I, I, and I also think that, you know, the pledge cost of board games is now becoming a problem because of, because of material costs are skyrocketing. People, you know, people are being turned off by 
the growing pledge costs, which are necessary. You know, you can't, it's not like it was five years ago, you know, or, or eight years ago, say, right. where you offer huge, huge, huge numbers of miniatures at a res- relatively low cost to the company, you know, and, and, you know, you look at, look at, you know, a company that produces well-known zombie board games were able to offer inordinate numbers of miniatures at right. a ridiculously low cost per mini. Uh, and that's just not feasible anymore. Um, unless, I mean, you know, e- even for Games Workshop, who own, of course, you know, they produce all their, most of their miniatures. Even they even started to hit them. So it's, I think that's where we're going to see a, a boom in RPGs. Okay. Based on the fact that, you know, books are still relatively cheap to produce, relatively. I mean, they're still more right. expensive right. than they were, but things haven't shot up in the same way. Sure. So one of the things you do at Steamforged is you've worked on RPGs that are based on licensed IPs. And I'm thinking specifically Dark Souls, which came out recently. Whereas Epic Encounters and Animal Adventures are in-house IPs generated by you and your team. Dark Souls comes from, obviously, a very well-known video game series. Uh, For those who might not know, Dark Souls is an exceptionally popular and well-received video game series. Exceptionally so. One of the best-selling video game series of all times. Uh, in full disclosure, I did do some consulting work on the Dark Souls RPG with Steamforged, in case that matters to the listeners, though I don't think that'll alter my questions in any way here. So there must be an, a lot of intense pressure on such a large IP, both in terms of fan expectations, but also in terms of the value the IP has to the parent company. I mean, uh, I believe From Software is the producer of Dark Souls. And they are, they, I'm sure they view their IP valuably. I mean, it's a world renowned, instantly recognizable game. Mm. Well, they, I mean, they do and and rightly so. And it does, it restricts how you can depict things. Mostly. I think that's my main experience is that, Mm -hmm the way you can relate and provide the materials for players Mm -hmm. is firmly controlled. Okay. So for instance, in the, in the dark souls core book, the areas we provide to play in the, the world law has to be extremely carefully worked with. You can't just go making stuff up, which sure. for I think for um, role-playing game designers and writers is quite difficult. Because my instinct is to is to provide plot hooks by inferring and implying possibilities, which you can't do with the licensed IP. Sure. Or certainly you can't do with certain licensed IP. Others, you know, others, your, your mileage may vary. Um, there are some where you can, you know, they really kind of encourage you to, to, to put your stamp on it, you know, and to, to imply that, you know, maybe this isn't canon, but it's canon for you, you know, that kind of your, your Glorantha may vary kind of thing. 
Right. Other IPs are much more controlled and much more focused on what they want to be true or what they want fans to understand as true. Sure. Um, and with Dark Souls, where the law is so oblique and is so, you know, rigorously focused within the game, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of divulged only through fragmentary things, you know, the descriptions of weapons, little scraps of law, extremely kind of nomic utterances from the NPCs, etc. Most of the lore that fans have pieced together has been pieced together. It has been, you know, assembled through kind of, you know, uh, detective work. Therefore, even inferring and implying potential explanations of that law might then come to be to be seen as implying canonicity of one theory or another. And that is where the difficulty lies. You know, if, if there sure. are, you know, for certain games, there are things which are canon and things which are not. And as long as you're with the canon side, that's fine. With something like Dark Souls, the elusive nature of the canon makes writing anything which might be seen to kind of expand on that really, really problematic. Sure. And it probably makes writing it difficult to begin with because there might be sections they expect you not to define, even though fans have pieced it together in case they yes. want to have a twist later or something like that. And so you're sort of trying to create this nebulous yet firm and concrete usable product in a way that differs from the source material. And yeah. And also to kind of say to fans, look, this is what, what you've pieced together, what you want to, glean from the wikis etc that can be true for you we're just not allowed to say it and obviously the you know i won't go into the 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 sure. rigmarole of the uh the, the the myriad problems with that game but that was something which um fans were uncertain about and it was a, a failing on my part is i didn't make that kind of permission clear enough okay but at the same time i couldn't i couldn't say we're not allowed to tell tell you this shit make it up right so with dark souls you put that on the 5e chassis the DD fifth edition yeah. rule set that uh which has powered i believe all the rpgs currently published by steamforged uh that is correct yes although that will be changing soon um, yes but i'm not allowed to say anything for the moment other than that other than that other than the, there's something different coming very soon that i've designed it. so with this 5e chastity use now obviously i imagine there's sort of a fiscal slash marketing component in that it's a popular rule set you're gonna get the biggest player base sort of caught in the net out of the gate and with a big ip like this that's really valuable but 5e differs a bit in tone from Dark Souls in a lot of ways. 5e is very heroic, is very epic. Dark Souls sort of has, has spawned a whole genre called Souls-alike, which is very sort of grindy and lethal. And one of the things that's in the Dark Souls RPG that I quite like is this idea of respawning at the campfire, which comes from the video games, right? You die, you go back to the campfire. 
and the and it's an interesting way to address it because it's it's interesting that this is we're talking about this because I recorded yesterday with somebody and we talked about how RPGs can take more ideas from video games. And this has pulled this idea of the infinite respawn from a video game where that's assumed to be the case in a video game. If you die and come back, you don't, it doesn't break your immersion. Nobody's shocked that your Diablo character is back. Right. Um, And part of that is because the story is static and linear. And so you just kind of go back to the previous point in the story in an RPG though, there is often a sort of pushback against a resurrection right? Mm. That revival, it's seen as something that's potentially canon breaking or problematic or should be hard to do. Whereas video games kind of just, hey, you died, come back. Here we go. What was that like getting to work with that framework? Because to me, that's a very interesting divergence from sort of the tabletop RPG standard. So I went back and forth over how to do that. A lot. And again, there's a really positive uh, Dark Souls Discord community on on the Steamforged Discord, which I engage with quite a lot. And that's one of the, still one of the most controversial aspects of the game. Okay. <clears throat> because the way the rules work is if half your party dies, you all respawn in the bonfire. And the reason I put that in was because in playtesting, it was really unfun for everybody who was dead to sit and watch somebody else roll dice. Sure. But obviously in the computer game, you are one person. And when you die, you just restart. So I tried to balance the the video gameness of it Mm-hmm. That kind of you die, start again, die better, with the tabletop RPGness of you're a party and you're working together. And I don't know whether I don't know whether I threaded the needle correctly, but yes, it was. I think I think RPGs are increasingly taking things from video games. I think Fabula Ultima. I don't know if you've seen that. Does mm-hmm. that really well with the JRPG? genre i think it's a really really clever bit of design and there's some you know lots of other games are doing similar stuff at the same time it is really difficult to make it work for a table of people uh, sometimes because video games are nearly always predicated on a single player mode unless They are actively multiplayer games, and even then, usually those are player versus player. You know, there, there are a couple of you know cooperative multiplayers out there, but I mean, usually they're just hack and slash as well, which is quite a difficult genre to really work in RPGs. You know, you need much more to kind of. I think the hack and slash genre in RPG is is very different from that in in video games. There's many more puzzles. There's much more, you know, kind of sitting down and thinking your way through the hack and slash bit which, you know, is just button bashing, you know, in a video game. So it's a it's a somewhat fraught relationship, I think, that that okay. translation. And I think I think if I had my time again, I would make the same choice. Because I, you know, I understand the argument that, you know, uh, 
you're kind of you, I've eliminated the possibility of one player beating the boss on the final roll. But at the same time, I think I would make that choice because it's more fun for five people or four people to be right. around the table rolling that dice to beat that boss than one person getting the glory. If you want sure. to be the one person getting the glory and just we'll just play the video game. The whole point of the RPG is to give you a framework to play similar Souls-like adventures, but cooperatively as a multiplayer experience. Sure. I think that's an interesting, I think there's, I think there's an interesting position for uh, tabletop RPGs because video games take a lot unabashedly and they admit it from tabletop role-playing games. I mean, if you if you look at really any video game RPG, you can draw its roots back to role playing games between levels and stats and classes and experience. All of that comes from there. But we have, as an industry, have not done a good job of cribbing the good ideas back into our space from them. It's very much kind of been a one way flow of information in a lot of ways. Yes, yeah, I would, and I would agree with. That. I, I think there's definitely a lot of room for designers to explore video games and the mechanics therein and bring them back into the RPG tabletop space. I mean, I to, on that subject, I have, with the game I'm currently working on, the non-5e game, I have taken some combat mechanics from um, the excellent triangle strategy. Which, if people if people like tactics games, that is a a, a very enjoyable example. And there are you know some very simple mechanics in there, which I think make combat interesting and engaging without comp- without without adding any real additional layers of complexity. It's very very simple to grasp how it works, and. Uh, they, they, you know, they port it over so beautifully and so easily. Uh, so, it, it, I think it's it's something I'm doing a lot more. I've kind of consciously been playing more video games mm-hmm. for for almost as research because I do think I think that is a it's time we started stealing stuff back. I, I mean, they stole from us. It seems fair to go the other direction. Yeah, I mean, you know. It's, it's, so with Dark Souls, Steamforge has also done Elden Ring and they've done Bloodborne related products, but not. Uh, we have not. Done Bloodborne. Oh, I thought there was a Bloodborne card game. I must be mistaken. It's by uh, Fantasy Flight. Okay, well, you've done Elden Ring board games. We have indeed, yes. Are and and I understand you probably can't answer my question, but are we to expect an Elden Ring tabletop role playing game? Uh, I can't answer that question. That's fair. I figured that would be the answer, but I thought I would ask. That that would be, if I were to give any information on anything to do with that, there would be my head on a, on a pike. That's very British. So I suppose it's appropriate. Yeah. I mean, that is still the de facto punishment for any kind of treason. That makes sense. So, are there other video games you would love to adapt to RPGs? Yes, there are. And there are a couple um, of IPs we already have done stuff with that we are hoping to begin work on adapting. Okay. Again, 
can't confirm names. If it would, if we're just talking stuff, pie in I'd the sky, like, theoretical, something that you can say you would like to do. Yeah. I mean, I would love to do a Final Fantasy VII RPG. I think that world's amazing. And I would love to do, you know, I mean, there's there's got to be other cells of eco-terrorists taking on Shinra. And I think I think there's a game there. Uh, you build your own little faction. You know, you can probably bump into other, you know, Cloud and Ariel at different points. You're in one of the other hubs around. As a I confession, despite, despite being a 90s kid, I have never played a Final Fantasy video game. Not even, not, none, none at all. Uh, let me rephrase that. In college, we played, I believe it was Crystal what? Chronicles, the one where you would plug the Game Boy into the GameCube to play mm. it. Okay. We did that over, yeah, over a Thanksgiving holiday where we were all stuck in the dorms and we finished the game. That was the only Final Fantasy game I think I've ever touched. I think I've played, I've played four, six, seven, eight, nine. I've not played any since nine. They all started to look a bit too realistic. <laughs> I, I have, them. I have seen the Advent Children movie, mm. so I'm at least relatively familiar with the fact that it's a thing. Any others? I mean, I, I, I would quite, I'd be quite interested in doing like a sinking city or something. I think that was a really good Lovecraft okay. game. That could sure. be kind of cool as an RPG. Uh, but then I mean, I just love Cthulhu stuff. So it's really just, you know, that was kind of designed for me, that game. Well, nobody's perfect. Yeah. I mean, you're just wrong. We've had this argument before. Alan. And you did a really good Cthulhu game as well. Tiny Cthulhu is excellent. I really like it's that. A, game. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I did have, uh, now, now it's completely gone. Oh, Assassin's Creed. Oh, okay. I, would I have only played do... the first one or two of those. Ah, you see, now I have almost no interest in the first one or two. I love Odyssey. Ancient, it's ancient, you know, it's classical Greece. It's the Peloponnesian War. It's really, really well done. Your characters are really cool. The combat system's fun. I mean, there's some major historical inaccuracies which annoy me, but not so many that I can't, you know, enjoy it. And I, I believe that the kind of recreation of of Athens and Delphi are sufficiently sort of accurate that they are used as teaching tools now. Wow. In several classics courses. So I, I'm a big fan of that one. And Valhalla as well is pretty cool. Okay. Well, I will probably have to try one of them at some point. Definitely, definitely encourage. I'm more of uh, a 4X any- video gamer. I like my Stellaris and my Crusader Kings. So, I've, 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 Have you got the Crusader Kings board game? Yes, I have never played it, but it is on my shelf behind me. Yeah, I, I, I played the demo. It's quite, it's quite fun. Uh, I bought yes, it and then never got it. But it's, I it's have yet found people who I can force to sit down and play it with me yet, but it's on my list. Yeah, I'm still working on them. I'll break them eventually. So we're getting near the end of time. I generally have two questions I ask folks at the end here. The first one is, what is a question you've never been asked in an interview that you've always wanted to answer? And then I'll ask you to answer it. Okay. I don't know how to phrase this as a question. Which 
bands deserve RPGs oh, sure. written about okay. them? Because I have long and, and opinions about this. One, the fact there isn't a Bruce Springsteen RPG is uh, an abomination. Because, I mean, Born to Run is an RPG, as is uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town. And they would make a great, that would be a great set. The whole steady, I am, I am going to get them to agree to let me to write something where you get to play one of their, because obviously I don't know, for anybody who's not familiar with Hold Steady, they have a series of characters in their songs. There's a, one called Holly, um, whose parents named her Hallelujah. The kids, they call her Holly. If she scared you, then she's sorry. Sorry, um, I'm just getting into the lyrics there. There's uh, Charlemagne in sweatpants. They, they have all these characters who recur in quite a number of songs. And I, I've always thought there should be some sort of, whether it's a, a choose your own adventure book or something, something about them and then obviously there should be a bob dylan rpg where you play some of the weirder characters from his kind of 60s psychedelic phase you know napoleon in rags uh, mr tambourine man uh, all these characters there should be the that should be a trilogy of games and one day i will write them so yeah i've always wanted to talk about that so thank you for the opportunity and- those were not the bands I'd expected to hear in this list either. So that was interesting. Oh, yeah. I was I was expecting something akin to the Abney Park role-playing game, which uh, I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with the band Abney Park. I am not. They are a sort of steamship steampunk themed band, and they received a role-playing game from uh, Cake Bread and Walton. Oh, very uh, nice. Several years I like, ago. Yeah. I think it's Peter Cake Bread. He lives... Um... He lives not far from me. He's a fellow northerner. Okay. Good guy. Um, All right. Do you have any questions for me at the end here? Always. We've always got stuff to talk about. Okay. Have you seen Slow Horses yet? I have not. Or read it? I have read uh, the first several books. Excellent. I I, the, feel... I just signed up for Apple TV, but I'm working my way through Foundation first. Fair enough. Well, I feel I feel you and I should have a long talk about Cold Shadows and and what should be done with that because I I love that game. You know, I love that game, um, and I love that. I think that I think that kind of dark spy genre is underexploited for RPGs, and I think I think. Definitely should do something cool with that. I would love to do something cool with it. So <laughs> excellent. And then, what are your thoughts on the growth of solo RPGs? So it's interesting you ask that because I've recently started designing solo RPGs as a design exercise. I find them interesting. Uh, I what I really find interesting is a way to leverage solo RPGs inside a communal sense still. Um, one of my go-tos for that explanation is uh, epistolary RPGs, letter writing RPGs, where you would play it solo, but then you write a letter and mail it to the, everybody else in the group so you can all experience it together, and that sort of becomes a cyclical letter writing campaign. And I, and I find the concept of community through solo role-playing to be an interesting 
uh, an interesting thorn to tackle. Maybe uh, how how do you turn something that is inherently a one person event into something that could be shared communally? And to me, the idea of right of turning the play session reporting into a mechanical aspect of the game is where it gets interesting. Yeah. Okay. That's very interesting. And uh, I, I very much enjoyed stretching my legs with solo role playing. I think I think solo role playing provides some of the room to steal back from video games a little bit. Yes, I think I think there's definitely an aspect there. I suppose and, I find it. Sorry, I was going to say I find it, and I I assume you you might not feel the same about this because you are far more prolific than I am. I find the notion of solo RPGs too close to creative writing exercises and if i'm writing it's because i've got writing to do sure i don't know i find i don't i find it difficult to kind of summon the energy to write just for me i think anymore sure and uh adept icarus recently announced a solo rp a, a full solo rpg probably my first that's dedicated strictly to solo play uh called uh cyan starlight will be coming out this year um, and it's Very a science good. fiction, it's a science fiction role-playing game, but we're leveraging a lot of technology in that to create an experience that pulls you out of the game book into something else. Uh, there will be inputs into a website that generate results, things like that. And, I, and so having... we're trying to think of ways to take solo RPGs and move the needle in a way that allows them to be not just in your, like how you said creative writing, because it can very much feel like writing a choose your own adventure. My first several mm. ones have felt very much that way. Cause that was the closest experience I had. But as I've stretched my legs, I've really learned that there's a lot of freedom because you get to, you get to structure creative writing in a mechanical sense in a way somebody can consume and use it, even if they're not a creative writer. Mm. Yes. Yeah, no, I can see that as a a worthy goal, uh, and a and certainly something you know potentially very useful and interesting. I've just I've not quite cracked it for me yet, and I know yeah. I, I you know I've, I've read Science Starlight uh, for anybody who's uh, listening out there and hasn't. Uh, it's really really good, and I I think the the use of the technology is inspired, and that is the kind of thing I think we will hopefully see more of because I think that is the way to, to really make them sing. It'll be, it'll be an interesting experiment. And I'm, it's, I'm grateful that Adepticarus is going to take the kind of take the risk on trying this new thing from me because I'm not known for solo role-playing games. And so they're taking a bit of a risk by publishing this product. And I think it's, and I'm grateful to them for it. And I think it's going to be really exciting to see what happens. I think it's going to be great. Yeah, I hope so. All right, Rich, if people want to find you or support you, what's the best way to do so? I am on Facebook. And if you're a friend of a friend, you can have me on there. And I am on Discord. I can't remember my Discord handle. And I (laughs) am on Mastodon uh, at CAugust at Dice Camp. Okay. I don't have Twitter because I hate it. So uh, I will not uh, ever be involving myself in that. 
cesspool again, thank God. All right, folks, I'm Alan Barr, and this has been Radio Free RPG.